Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Downtown Den podcast. As you may have gathered, I'm not Frank McKenna, who is currently recovering from a sore throat. But fear not, he was in full voice in this latest episode of the Downtown Den podcast with our very own political editor, Jim Hancock. In this episode, Frank and Jim take a whirlwind tour of Jim's career, covering politics across the UK for over five decades. Jim's career took him from the pioneering Piccadilly radio in Manchester to the BBC. He's interviewed several prime ministers from Margaret Thatcher to Tony Blair. He's covered numerous party conferences. And despite his many years in the business of politics, he still has the same enthusiasm for it as he did all those years ago. So without further ado, here is downtown CEO Frank McKenna in conversation with Jim Hancock. Welcome back to the Downtown Den podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled, delighted, pleased, honoured that in the den with me today is my longtime friend who I first met in 1997, a story which I'm sure we'll share with you during the course of the conversation today. And we've known each other ever since through uh, my life in politics and his life. Um, as a political journalist, one of the best in my opinion, um, and somebody who we're very grateful to for uh, giving us an insight on a weekly basis for many years now in our TFI bulletin as our political editor, and it's Mr. Jim Hancock. James, welcome to the den. Thank you very much indeed. Yes, 520 um, blogs. That's not now, bad, is it? Since 2012. Yeah. And still relevant. And still, and this is one thing that I do want to draw out today, your enthusiasm and interest in politics never diminishes. And, you know, you and I, we have differences of opinion. Of course we do. But I think we're sort of in and around the same area of our political beliefs. And yet, despite all the trials and tribulations that we've witnessed in recent times, you, as I say, still seem to have this enthusiasm for knowing what's going on and reporting on what's going on. Where does that come from? Where did that interest in politics come from? Uh, I think it came from the 1964 general election when I was at, um, uh, uh, I was at boarding school. And um, if you were a, a prefect, you could watch the television late in the evening. And if you weren't, you couldn't. And my best friend was watching the, the, the beginnings of the 64 election about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And he turned around and saw me. I was desperate to watch it. And he said, you should be in bed, you know, go up to your dormitory. And it's funny. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but there's, there's some visceral moments in life which are disproportionate to, you know, anything. I was so frustrated. Anyway, um, so the 64 election was in the term time, but Harold Wilson's second victory was in, was just before Easter and I was on my Easter holidays and I was able to consume the entire <laughs> the 1966 general election. So I always had an interest in it. I mean, I originally wanted to be a teacher when I was at Manchester University. I was going to go back to the West Country where I'm originally from and to be a teacher, but uh, that all changed. Um, and I'm, um, uh, I got a chance to work at Piccadilly Radio. 
But I always had this sort of political interest, and then I was allowed to develop it as a broadcast. So that's the strange truth about it, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I was determined to take... I mean, I, d I did take a slight... I mean, my first political memory was the Nixon-Kennedy presidential election in 1960. I was just about aware of that, but I, I've sort of built, gone on from there. Did you have any sort of family who were involved in politics? Is, do you think that, that is where your interest stemmed from, or was it just something that... You took an interest in? Um, and my mother wasn't particularly political, but my father was a staunch conservative. Oh, and okay. we were living in Plymouth. And uh, Michael Foote was the MP for Devonport. And in 1950, he was defeated by a woman called Dame Joan Vickers. And my father always kept on recounting how when they defeated Michael Foote, um, they were going to go back to have a reception at the Devonport Conservative Association. And her car broke down and they had to push a car up the hill and he, he he recounted that to me and of course i got to know michael foot quite well and because he's a plymouth argyle supporter as well and when he became leader of the opposition you know and uh, <laughs> i i got quite friendly with him and i i, so I recounted this once you know because he went off to be mp for evervale so uh, yeah my father was 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 quite interested um um and i think he could have been a could have been a counselor any interest in taking that route into politics, being an elected representative yourself rather than reporting on it? Well, um, they always say that student presidents, student union presidents, you know, go on to a political career. But um, it didn't happen with me. I mean, I, I went and came up to Manchester University and I in the late 60s, and so I went to all the general meetings and, of course, it was an incredible period of political intensity. I mean, Harold Wilson was in office, but he was sort of denounced on the campuses by the international. Set the That's right, the international <laughs> Marxist group and the liaison committee for the defence of student unions, and and I was watching all this. And I used to go regularly, but I never spoke. I didn't, I, it took me quite a long time to get my confidence when I came north. You know, I, my undergraduate years, I was quite quiet and shy, really, um, and then. Nick Brown, who went on to be a chief whip for the Labour Party, he was standing for election and he didn't, um, he, 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 did, he didn't win. But he, I mean, something happened in the campaign which made sure that he would win. And that very night when he was on, on his uppers, he came to Dalton Hall when I was a student for, for the hustings. And I, I thought, well, I can't speak to one of these people in this intimate surroundings of my own hall. And I went up to him. Of course, Nick was sort of, in a state of turbulence at that point, for someone to come up to him and chat to him. And we we became firm friends. And cutting long story short, he said, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be president, but I can make you president. I said, I've never spoken at a meeting. He said, no, but this is how we'll do it. So I became Paul president, president of the, all the halls. That got me onto the stu Student Union Council. I got the Senate postgraduate representative, so I was on the academic side. And we won by eight votes. And exactly... 50 years ago, almost to today, I fought off an attempt to remove me uh, because we booked a man called Steppenwolf and lost some money. <laughs> and, uh, and they all blamed me. And in fact, I was trying to reform the Socials Committee. The point about this is that in 12 months, I experienced you know, everything uh, political. But then um, there was a guy who's the lay governor of the university called Norman Quick, Quicks for Motors, people might remember that. It was a big car dealership. And he said, when are you stopping this ridiculous left-wing stuff and doing something sensible? I said, well, I'm going to go back and finish my MA and, and be a teacher. And he said, oh, I 
do that if I were you. I said, well, it's funny you should say, I see you're the director of this new commercial radio station in Manchester, Piccadilly Radio. He said, yes. He said, I can get you a job there. So I, I worked for the managing director for a year, building the station with a promise that I get a chance to go on air. And the rest is history. Oh, wow. And was your first correspondence job in politics or was it general news? Well, in those days, and it's difficult to describe to people now, commercial radio, because there'd been a history of commercial radio uh, and, the, and the government. It was outlawed, wasn't it? It was, because Harold Wilson, there was all the ships, Radio Caroline, yeah. were just transmitting just outside the territorial waters. And Wilson passed the Marine Offences Act in 1967, which, which stopped Radio Caroline and Radio London. And Radio London was run by a man called Philip Birch, who didn't get the LBC franchise in London, but then got the franchise for Piccadilly Radio. And it was for him that I started to work in July 1973. Lovely man, you know, and uh, we built up a great team at... Uh, at Piccadilly Radio, and uh, but but it was allowed, but it was heavily regulated. So there had to be a certain number of hours of news and current affairs on commercial radio. So, I, I, and, and people still talk about Piccadilly Radio, Manchester, and indeed Radio City here. Um, um, pioneers, pioneers in the in that mixture of. Um, you know, competing with Radio 1 on a local basis with local DJs, but also doing a lot of news and current affairs and social programming. And it really was a golden era for commercial radio and gave me a great start because I was largely le left to my own devices to start reporting on. I mean, I didn't know anything about local government, but it was we went on air just as local government was reformed in 1974 when all those urban district councils were removed and, and they created the Merseyside County Council in the Greater Manchester Council. So in the late 70s, I did all reported on that. And if you think back to that time of the 70s, you know, we've had an awful lot of commentary recently, haven't we, about the comparison. You know, so winter of discontent, cost of living crisis, high inflation. Do you sense any similarities between then and now? Yes, one of the, one of the things that strikes me, I may be proved wrong about this, was that in 1974, just before we went on air, we were actually dry running when Heath went to the country on the, who, you know, because there was... Who runs the country? Yeah, that's right, a lot of strikes. You yeah. know, who runs the country? So me or the unions. Yeah, and, the, and, the, and at that point, the British people said, not you, mate. Yeah. And gave Wilson a minority government, which he then strengthened slightly in the autumn of 74. And... You know, because there was quite a level of support for the trade unions and for industrial action at that time. And I do detect it. I mean, I was just listening today to somebody that was saying, well, you've got a, you know, an operation coming up. The nurses' strike's going to stop you having it. And they said, I know it's, it's quite a serious operation for me. And whilst I regret it's going to be delayed, I sympathise with the nurses. And even with the rail strike, you know, the, you, there's this underlying support for that sort of thing seems to have slightly returned. So, yeah, to, to some extent, I, I, think, you know, I, I don't know how the winter's going to develop, but there's a lot of public sector strikes that seem to be looming. The other thing I just wanted to get your thoughts on, um, because it's something I find myself doing in terms of looking back and seeing these giant political figures of the past, and comparing them with the politicians of today. 
I have to say the politicians of today don't come out particularly favourably on that scorecard. And again, I just wonder, uh, as somebody who's a little more experienced than that, whether you went through the same process. You know, did you see Heath and Wilson and their respected cabinets, because there were some great characters around that period of time who you will have got to know and study, I'm sure. When you move into the 70s, I remember my dad saying, you know, staunch Labour man, of course, oh, Thatcher, she won't last five minutes. Because she was seen as an a, a inexperienced leader coming into a really tough economic situation. And I think most people thought she was going to fail. Of course, now we look back and say, whether you agreed with her or you didn't, what a political giant she was. So, again, probably a difficult question for you, but what I'm going to pose anyway. Politicians today, not of the calibre of yesteryear? The first thing I think I have to say is it's terribly easy to think that, you know, you, you can look back on a golden era. So older people have got to be very cautious about making that assumption but with that caveat the fact of the matter was that a lot of the people that i was dealing with had both labor and conservatives fought in the second world war dennis healy was a beach captain at anzio um heath had got the uh, george cross or something for, for valentry for valor in the second world war and um, you know, the Attlee government made major changes, National Health Service, and, so on, and the subsequent Conservative governments didn't seek to substantially unravel that. I'm talking about the governments of Macmillan uh, and, and, and Heath, didn't seek, because they, in a sense, they'd experienced war. They had met different class, crucially, they'd met different, they'd met the working middle class and met the working class, which in the 1930s and before it hadn't happened. So there was that sort of thing, and but they brought that hinterland. They'd all done something. They fought in the war, and then they probably had careers. Whereas, you know, a, a, the political path today, some almost in both parties, can be un, university lecturer or a spad for a minister, and then you get into office, and they haven't got that that hinterland. Um, but the last thing is, we will never know what people of considerable caliber who have a tiny skeleton in their closet, doesn't want to touch it with a barge pole, or do not want to be subjected to the vicious social media that we've got today. And so I do, I do think the quality isn't the same. Um, and, and, but I'm, I'm just a bit I'm giving you a slightly cautious answer in case, in case I'm wrong. No, I think it's a fair point. I mean, I think that there are still some very able, talented, Politicians, we had uh, today at a lunchtime event, um, Shadow Employment Minister Alison McGovern absolutely captivated the audience. You know, whether the people in the room were Tory, Labour, she knows the stuff, she puts a case in a very clear and concise way, clearly engages with people. So I'm not suggesting that the whole of Parliament is dearth of talent, but I do suggest that we haven't got those big figures that I can, they're real off my tongue now. Tory, Hesseltine, Clark, Tebbett, I'll spit that name out, Thatcher, go over to the Labour side. You know, you've mentioned Wilson, Michael Foote, okay, he wasn't a fantastic Labour Party leader, but he was a fantastic parliamentarian. 
Tony Benn. Roy Jenkins, when Roy he was Jenkins. in the Labour Party, the reforms he made as Home Secretary, one of the most homosexuality and things like that. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the most influential politicians of our time. And I, as you say, in 20 years' time, I may be sat in your seat saying to somebody, well, I remember that West Street thing, what a political giant he was, and he's gone on to do this, and maybe Sunak will prove to be a better Prime Minister than I at this moment in time. But the point that you make there, I think, which is a really good one, is that, and I'll mention Heseltine because we've just done a podcast with him, where he cuts his teeth in business. He knows what it's like to be a businessman, an entrepreneur, take risks. There's an awful lot of these people, even some of those people that you and I rate, who just haven't had that background and experience. And it's sad, I think. I think it, I think it does mean that we don't have necessarily that understanding and appreciation sometimes of the decisions they're taking, the impact that has on the ground. So that's, that's just my take on it. We'll, it's, we do our best to tell them, so that's our job, perhaps. Let's move on to... So you're in the 70s, you're at Piccadilly, obviously cutting your teeth, learning your trade. When do you end up at the B? Well, I went down um, uh, on an attachment um, to the BBC's... Uh, sorry, I, I left Piccadilly Radio and went just across Piccadilly Gardens to where the BBC Northwest programme used to come from uh, in, yeah. in, before it moved to Oxford Road. I mean, God, you know, you, you realise how old you are because Prime Minister Callaghan opened the BBC's headquarters on Oxford Road in 1977 <laughs> and now it's completely disappeared, you know. So I went briefly as a reporter on Northwest Tonight, and um, then I got an attachment to the BBC's parliamentary unit at Westminster. And I'd only been there about three or four weeks, and so I sort of did a Liz Trust, because a chap called Peter Allen, who became a, a senior person, at, well, he was the political editor of IRN and went on to a distinguished career on Radio 5. Um, he, he sort of came across the corridor, because we were, we, were, we were operating in a... In an, an address called Number One Bridge Street, which was right opposite Big Ben, but it had been condemned since the Second World War for demolition. It was this, you know, it was a prime site in London. It's where Portcullis House is now. And you used to go up this winding staircase and rats in the basement, and, the, and our office used to rattle when the tube, uh, the Westminster tube trains came in. And um, he said, you know, do you want to come and work for IRN? You know, and, and Peter was, uh, we had, they had a great team. The BBC was a bit po-faced in those days, and I was just doing clips for local radio. And um, so I went over, you know, to cross the, literally across the landing and spent two wonderful years with Peter Allen, Peter Murphy, and um, a, a very junior researcher who worked for me. Uh, on the, we, used to, we used to have, one, one week in four, we used to have to do a program for the whole network called Decision Makers. And um, this junior researcher was called Martha Carney, oh, who is wow. now <laughs> flourishing on the Today program. Yeah. So I did two years there and then um, wanted to, not for the, for the first two times in my life, family concerns arose. Uh, I just got married and we wanted to have children. So I went back to Piccadilly Radio. Okay. So in terms of the um, early years of that reporting and how you would engage with politicians then. What was the sort of process back in those days? Was there a more, 
how can I put this? Mutual respect, perhaps, do you think, back in those days? Do you think that may be lost a little between media and politicians these days? Um, to some extent. I mean, the, the, the big change, I mean, when I, when I first started at Piccadilly Radio in 1974, I got 40 minutes with Sir Keith Joseph, who was a man who, who changed the Conservative Party from the consensus that we were talking about to prepare the ground for Mrs. Thatcher, who ripped up a lot of that consensus. Some of it was needed, and, but there were no spin doctors around. By the time I was working for IRN, I remember doing Norman Tebbit once, and it was interesting. It was just at the time when they'd come into office, and it was the first period of the Thatcher government, where they were treading carefully with harsh, harsh budgets, but they hadn't, in fact, they backed off a, a miners' confrontation. People think about the, the, the 84 strike, but before that, there was another strike, and Thatcher backed off. 81? Yes. Yeah. And I interviewed Tebbit, and there were sort of, beginning to have spin doctors around and it began to become slightly more controlled so that but but it was it was it was still different because i remember you know after i went back to piccadilly then i went to granada tv as their political editor in the late 80s when thatcher was in her pom and she was privatizing the water industry and i said they'll only be interested in making profits mrs thatcher profits she's sticking this Finger in my face. <laughs> Aren't Granada Television interested in making profit? <laughs> and the press officer apologised to me. I'm terribly sorry, Jim. She's had a, a heavy day. I said, Bill, don't apologise. It's a great clip. She's giving as good as she got. That's, that's fair enough. Um, so it, 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 ha it, has, it has changed over the years. Um, but uh, in, terms of, in terms of respect, I don't know. I mean... As you possibly know, my, my wife was a counsellor, which, which I think has helped my whole career because I'd never, I've never had a sort of contempt for politicians, you know. I mean, it's often said of our friend Jeremy Paxman that he has to sort of view, you know, what, what's this lying bastard in front of me going to lie, <laughs> going to lie about today? You know, that, sort of, yeah. you know, that wide-eyed scepticism from moment one, you know. So I, 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 I've always sort of felt that, you know, there's a lot of, because I knew what it was like to stand for office and, you know, the time you give up to go to a, a cold uh, consultation room where you, you see your ward constituents and things like that. Um, so, but it has got, it has got quite adversarial, but it, it, it operates on two levels. You know, there is, there is this sort of, public confrontation that people see on the television. But there's also lots of friendships between politicians and, and, and journalists. Um, you've got to, you, you know, in order to do a job, you've got to try and get on with them. Really. Of course. That's how you get your stories. That's how you earn your living. So before we go to a short break, I just want to, because uh, I'm going to, I really wanted to, listen, you, you and I could do a five-hour podcast and I still wouldn't get all the stories out of you. So I want to, move into in the second part of our conversation today your highlights give us a little bit of a inside track on some of the great characters and personalities you've met but one of the things you and i often chat about is how difficult it is these so i've i've sort of given the politicians a little bit of a kick in the modern day politicians so i now want to lighten up a little bit and perhaps reflect on something you said which is almost why would any bugger want to do it these days 
And I just wanted to ask you, not just in terms of the impact of social media and the new world of media that we have these days on politics, but on general life and how different it is now for somebody who is a political journalist from 2022 to 1972. Because I was saying this to you last night at all of the Cool Awards. It seems to me that what we have now is political commentators who actually express opinion rather than back in your day, political correspondents who used to report what the politicians did, thought, and wanted to take forward. Well, um, you know, we've, we've seen an exodus from the BBC of some high profile names who have told us that they need to be able to express themselves more. Well, good luck, you know. And we're talking about Andrew Marr, Emily Maitlis, John Sopel. Um, you know, they, they've gone to do podcasts. And I mean, I mustn't be old fashioned. You know, podcasts are doing one today. You know, this to some extent is the future. But there has been. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I thought was a huge mistake, I think it stopped now, was when the BBC encouraged their correspondents um, to, twi- to, tw- to tweet, you know, to, to engage in Twitter. Now, presumably they said to them, when you do that, you must, you must observe, you know, the BBC's impartiality guidelines. But my point is, once you go onto Twitter, it's the Wild West. Yeah. And you're inevitably <laughs> yeah. going to get involved in polemical discussions with people who are calling you everything under the sun. And it'd be less than human if you didn't respond. And then, of course, the papers pick up one small indiscretion by one of the BBC correspondents, and because there's a huge agenda against the BBC and some of the press, and it's 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 blown up, but then, but people start to um, make an assessment that, that that political journalists have got a view, and it's it, I don't want to be po faced about it, but it is it is absolutely one of your disciplines you've got to have is have everybody guessing how you vote. I mean, I people always use then people are fascinated to know, oh, how do you vote, Jim? I think you're this, and I say, really, you think that. <laughs> You know, and, and it's 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 just imperative that you you keep neutral. Otherwise, the whole thing's tainted. But of course, we're in a world now, and it started in the states, where opinionated radio, largely on the right, um, is something another thing we could discuss why the left hasn't quite done the same thing. Although CNN and people have now got so fed up with Trump and so on that they are tending to be polemical on the other side, which I think. Mean, um, you know, it's opinionated stuff. You know, we've got UK TV. Well, I know you, 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 you go yeah. on it, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it has, a, it has a different agenda. But I think for BBC and ITV, you've got to, got to stick to that. To that, um, that, that traditional. That tradition. That yeah. tradition and not. Well, where, where do you stand on people like Lineker? <laughs> well, I mean, you see, the, take, if you take the current World Cup, I mean, it it is really blown out of the water that thing about the separation of sport and politics. So therefore, if Gary Lineker is a football correspondent involved in the world of football, and we now agree that it, rightly or wrongly, it cannot be separated, the, the choice of venue, the values of the state hosting the thing cannot be separated. You know, he's probably in, entitled to to, to to have a view. He's not, he's not quite in the same position as the political correspondents, you know. So I think, but it, but well, it should be kept under control. In, even in your face, I can see that's, that's quite a difficult Yes, I'm not, I'm not wild about it. 
I think that my take on this, I'm a big supporter of the beef, always happy and always try and defend it when I can. But even I get frustrated at times um, because when I spot bias, and it can come from both sides, it winds me up because my view is you should just be there to tell us what the news is. Not tell us what your opinion is. If you want to tell me your opinion, stamp her off. And that applies to Lineker as well, in your opinion. Yeah, I think it's. I think he's probably crossed the line. Listen, Gary Lineker's views probably very sympathetic to a lot of them, not all of them. Um, but if he's getting the public, you know, he's got a, the platform he has now is because of the BBC. So that's the problem I have with, with Gary Lineker. Listen, if he walked in now, by the way, I'd kiss his feet. He scored 40 goals in one season for Everton. I love him to bits. And as I say, his political view is not a million miles away from mine. But I do think if you take the BBC shilling, with that comes a responsibility, and that responsibility should be remaining politically neutral. That's that maybe I don't know whether it's relevant, but of course you will have seen the first hour of the BBC's coverage last Sunday of the World Cup where the opening ceremony was deliberately not covered, whilst Gary linked into people like um, Jeremy Bowen to talk from um, about Ukraine and, and Russia and, and, and to other correspondents. I mean, it was a full, nearly a full hour about gay rights and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I suppose you'd say he was hosting it fairly neutrally, so that, that's, you're comfortable with that. I didn't watch it. Yeah, but be, I mean, what yeah. I'm saying is, and, and again, it was, it's almost like he yeah, was presenting a political And program. again, what I will say there is that, you know, if, I'm, if I switch to football and I want to watch football, if I want to watch the politics, I'll put the news on. So, so my personal view on that, I thought it was a massive own goal, forgive the pun, yeah. the BBC. Yeah. And, and it's, again, as I say, there was probably nothing in that hour that I disagreed with. But I don't think that is the they way. They should have shown the opening ceremony. Yeah, that's yeah. the way. Or, or, you know, if you want to, boycott it. But don't ram my agenda down people's throats. Even though there's widespread consensus on gay rights yeah. and on that workers yeah. shouldn't be dying in their hundreds building the stadium. That, that, that's what the topics but are. But I always try and put myself in the shoes of the, <laughs> we'll put it this way, normal people because I don't consider myself normal when it comes to politics. You and I are anorites. <laughs> we will, you know, we will watch obscure political programmes. We will get obsessed with by-elections and election nights and all that sort of thing. The vast majority of the gang out there talk about that. So my view of this stuff, from a very selfish perspective, is you continue with that agenda of ramming this stuff down people's throats who don't want to listen to it at that particular time because if my dad was still around, he'd have put the football on to watch the football. He do not want to be listening about, you know, a very progressive guy, my dad, but he doesn't want to be listening to Gary Lineker telling him about gay rights and about Black Lives Matter and about, he wants to watch the football. And, you know, my point to the left if I can keep it as broad as that is, you continue on that sort of route and you open the doors to the Farages and that crowd because people say, actually, at least these people just don't try and dictate to me what I've got to listen to and what news I'm going to be fed. I know they do it in a more subtle way, but can you see my point? Yeah. 
I think it's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I'm probably being too soft on Gary Lineker. Yeah, well. You said it, Jim. Right, listen, at that point, on that note, being soft on Gary Lineker, um, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, listen, we're going to get into a far more interesting discussion, which is some of the great people and personalities that Jim has interviewed over the years. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Downtown and Business are hosting two major national conferences in 2023. Our annual Planning, Property and Regeneration Conference will take place on Thursday the 9th of February in Birmingham. Talking about regeneration brings together leading public and private sector personalities and decision makers to discuss priority issues in the industry, including the levelling up agenda, planning laws, housing development and much more. We have an impressive lineup of speakers with West Midlands Mayor Andy Street being the latest big name speaker. Also among contributors are council leaders and chief executives James Lewis of Leeds City Council, Joanne Roney of Manchester City Council, Tom Stannard from Salford City Council and Tim Johnson from City of Wolverhampton Council. Our inaugural Business Innovation and Tech Conference Changemakers Live 2023 will welcome the best and brightest from the worlds of business, politics and academia, presenting solutions to the challenges facing the UK and beyond in the 21st century, such as net zero, technology, health, infrastructure and the cost of living crisis. We have a fantastic lineup of confirmed speakers, including Shadow Health Minister Wes Streeting, key Labour figure in the House of Lords, Lord Andrew Adonis, Knowledge Quarter CEO, Colin Sinclair, Director of Strategy at Bruntwood, Jessica Bowles, with more speakers to be announced soon. Aptly taking place in the state-of-the-art spine building in Liverpool's Innovation District, the Knowledge Quarter, on Thursday the 2nd of March 2023, Changemakers Live will be an unmissable day of thought-provoking presentations and interactive discussions, where we will be asking the question, so what's the big idea? For full details, please head to our website, www.downtownandbusiness.com. Okay, welcome back to the second part of this Downtown Den podcast with my old chum, Jim Hancock, a political correspondent, a giant within the world of political reporting. And uh, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, somebody I've known since 1997. But of course, he's been reporting since the early 70s. And so we're just going to really delve back into the history of James and some of the politicians that he's interviewed, he's come into contact with. So, Jim, some of the highlights, if you will. Well, I, I did mention the Keith Joseph interview, and I and I, I just want to go back to it because it was very early in my political career, and I was sort of asking him about what a Thatcher um, industrial policy would be, and uh, it was just going on and on, and I said, "Forgive me, Sir Keith, but I I don't see at which point the government are going to intervene. You've got a a company that's fa- you know a major car plant or something that's failing." And, you know, there's all sorts of... Wilson government have supported them and created them. Linwood in Scotland, the Labour government, created a car factory where there was no car production at all. And I said, I don't, I'm not hearing at what point even a Conservative government would intervene to save a major 
car plant. And I mean, listeners won't know how he spoke, but he had this rather strange. And he said, oh, you're far gone, aren't you? Far gone. Meaning that I was so being brought up as a child on this idea that the government would intervene uh, in, to save in, in <laughs> industries. And, so on. and this, uh, But it was significant because I thought he was probably kidding. But of course, when they came into office, particularly in the 80 to 82 period, industries were allowed to collapse. And Sir Geoffrey Howe famously took a view about the city in which we're talking that it should indulge in managed decline. So it was a it was a you know it was a forecast for the, for the future. That was the that was the first one. And of course, Can we just ask yeah. you about that point about the how note, which has become famous, hasn't it? In that now it's Thatcher said we should have managed to climb. And Hesseltine insists. No big fan of Margaret Thatcher, Michael Hesseltine. He always says to me, no, Margaret didn't believe in that. Jeffrey suggested it, and she actually knocked that back. Well, I can quite believe that, but, but the fact that there was a the Chancellor of the Exchequer felt that the way to handle this city was with managed decline. Said something about the Tory Party. Well, that, you know, it's yeah. just it's just not tenable on any grounds. You can be as right wing as you want to, but that that's an abnegation of responsibility. Uh, and we talk about the North South divide. Well, if if that was the mentality at that time, then can see why we we are where, where we are. Um, and, and another figure from that time, of course, was was Tony Benn. You know, who um, he, I mean, he moved. He wasn't he wasn't on the left originally, but he he moved he moved to the left. You know, and it was always fascinating to interview him. You know, he was such such an agile mind. And um, sometimes he strung things together uh, and annoyed people. But you know, it was. You know, the only question to ask, and this is how he talks, you know, the only question to ask is, you know, who who, who do you work for? Uh, who are you accountable to? And how can you be sacked? <laughs> and in a way, it's, it's quite a good way of defining accountability. <laughs> and then just one more from him. He said, there's two sorts of politicians. There's signpost politicians where you look at them and you see their principles and they're saying, you go in that direction, you know, you know where you're going and you know where you are with them. And there are weathercocks <laughs> who blow around in the wind and change their opinion in order to stay in office. And one last one was, of course, his whole, because he had a huge struggle with the peerage, because he, he became Lord Stansgate when his father died. You know, the, he just had no choice about it and then fought to renounce his peerage. So he always had a thing about, about, about peers. And, um, uh, you know, he used to sort of always sort of say, you know, that the House of Lords should be abolished and, uh, and, and, and uh, oh, that's right. Um, you know, uh, they're in the House of Lords. If you went into the dentist's chair and you sat down and um, you said, uh, and the dentist said to you, I'm not actually a dentist myself, and my father was, <laughs> you, get, you get straight out of the chair and go home. And that's a sort of demolish the hereditary principle of it. So in terms of Tony Ben. Um, because again, I sort of, that my sort of early political memories of those 70s elections when I was only still in school, thought I was very interested in what was happening. I think that probably came from my dad, to be honest. He was a big supporter of Ben at the time. But of course, Tony Ben famously became, many people think, a lightning rod with the split 
within the Labour Party that then created 18 years of Conservative government. That is the allegation. Because for those who don't know, in 1981, there was this huge battle for, bizarrely, the deputy leadership of the Labour Party between Dennis Healy, who's obviously on the right of the party, uh, and Tony Benn. There was a whole host of things going on at the time around reselection of MPs, mandatory reselection, so on and so forth. What was your take on all of that? Did, do you think that it was Tony Benn and that wing of the party that destroyed Labour's chances of winning the 83 election and, and subsequently you know, took a real knock? I mean, 83, longest suicide notes in history, as Peter Shawford famously described the manifesto. Was that Tony Benn? No entirely Tony Benn's doing, but the wing of, of, of the party that he clearly led. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was, it was a, you know, both, both parties, you know, had had this sort of consensual post-war situation. Thatcher went one way and the Labour Party, um, you know, uh, uh, under, well, it was, well, Michael Foote was elected initially. I mean, he, he then appeared to be quite moderate. I mean, he spent a lot of his leadership time between 1883 trying to quieten down the Benite left. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, t Tony was calling for a very radical program about nationalizing industries and, uh, and, 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 and unilateral nuclear disarmament, which of course had been a thing going right back for, 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 for a very long time. Um, but it was, it was a bit like what, what's, what happened recently with the Labour Party, you know, losing its grassroots because the working class of this country, and I think we've only really finally analysed it recently with what happened with Johnson, that they are believing in social justice and they, they believe in the Labour Party's, um, has got a good heart in terms of the NHS and all that sort of stuff. There's, the more difficult area has always been on economic responsibility. And Labour only wins when they briefly have a slender lead amongst the working class that they will handle the economy properly. And then that's often rapidly lost. And it's a real nightmare for, for Labour, as is another issue, which probably won't have time to get onto, which I, I'm, I'm developing thoughts about, which is it roofed roughly called immigration and the left. I think that's a huge issue that the Labour Party has got to think through because just occasionally, even Yvette Cooper, in my opinion, gives the impression that they're in favour of an open door. And that's, again, not where the working class are. The working class are generally just decent people. They want economic responsibility. They want social reform, moderate social, not, not a indulgent debate about trans rights, by the way. Um, and, and they are patriotic. And Keir seems to have got that. I mean, he always appears between two Union Jacks, so he seems to have got it. But, and, and, and Tony and, and Corbyn, even more so actually, gave the impression that there was a departure from that. And that's why I think Tony, a brilliant orator as he was, a nice man personally, but he, I think he got rather flattered by the young left and, 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 and felt a place in that. I think there was an element of that. Yeah. I saw him speak live at, at the town hall in St. Helens 
in the early 80s. And I have to say, he's one of the most impressive political orators I've ever seen. Um, sadly, didn't agree with much of what he said. But nevertheless, he delivered it well. Who's your next one, Paul? Well, well this, is, this is Neil Kinnock. I mean, I was in... Another great song. I was in Bournemouth for the taxi oh. speech. But that's... that's <laughs> Leave a council. Yeah, you know that. I mean, because generally speaking, I, I, I find... There's a couple of things I'm going to surprise you. Really boring. Prime Minister's Question Times. I'm not a big fan. I don't listen regularly. And party conference keynote speeches. I'm, I'm not a big fan of them either. But this one. You know, I was sort of, here we go again. And then he became more and more riveted as, as Neil did it. I mean, unfortunately, he had to apply, apply his, his oratorical skills within the party. It wasn't the Tory attack. But I was there for that. But, you know, obviously there was mayhem in the Labour Party. And I'd just gone back to Piccadilly Radio. And they were trying to get their licence to broadcast renewed because that had to come up every few years. And, and the programme controller said to me, I want you to come back from IRN, you know, come back from IRN, and we're really going to put resources into it. And so at the party conferences, and that's like 1982 and three, I had, they, they gave me the Piccadilly Radio outside broadcast vehicle, which they used normally to take to the Manchester show in the Cheshire show with a big mixing desk in it. It was a huge vehicle. It was far bigger than anything that the BBC had. And I had these posters, Jim Hancock, live from the Labour conference. And, and Neil Kinnett came off the thing. And he looked at this, he said, I'm bloody glad somebody's alive here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so so in that's... In terms of that speech. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, it was aimed at the Labour Council in Liverpool, Milton Tendency, and the theatre that that produced. Eggs are getting up, shouting, liar, liar. Eric Heffer walking, walking off. off the conference stage. Absolute mayhem in the auditorium. Can you ever see that happening at a party conference again? Because again, I went to the Liverpool Labour Conference. Kia made a, a great speech. I think he got about 25 standard ovations during the speech, actually. Um, but it's so mad. And it's not just Labour. Let me make it clear, the Tories are probably worse. Again, how do they expect people to engage? It's completely changed. I mean, if it's so anodyne. Even before the what you're talking about, the, uh, the, 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 the taxi speech, let's go back to the autumn of 1976. Dennis Healy is the Chancellor of the Exchequer oh. who had to turn back yeah. from flying abroad yeah. and, and get back. a bailout from the IMF. Yeah. And then it came to the economic debate at the Labour Party <laughs> conference. He was given three minutes, because he wasn't on the national executive, he was given three minutes from the floor, you know, Comrade, <laughs> comrade Healy, and he got to the rostrum and he was being had, I'm going to tell you the truth. And it was real theatre. Now, the Conservative Party was never like that. I mean, the best one was 1963, where literally became ill during the conference and, and Hailsham and Butler were vying openly on the platform. But the, conserv the last Conservative conference, it was only in session for three hours in Birmingham from four o'clock till seven o'clock for set speeches. The whole of the rest of the day was just fringe networking and so on. So, you know, so, that, so they are now just literally 
television showcases for, for, for clips. There's no pretense of making policy there. The Liberals, I'm, I'm going to put a plug in for my Liberal friends here. They go through their policy line by, I mean, I know you're going to say, well, who cares? But they, they, they're they the only party that contain real decision making. And I'll tell you what, busy telephone boxes they are <laughs> where they do their conferences anyway. Um, I, <laughs> I'm only serious. And um, Let's just stick with Kenneth for one second, because that was obviously a pivotal speech. It certainly, I think, was the start of the modernisation of the Labour Party. I'm not sure Neil Kinnock gets enough credit for where Labour ended up in 97, um, because he, of course, in 92, made that faux pas when... We're all right. We're all right. You know, it was bombastic. It was overconfident. Whether it absolutely made the difference, I don't know. I don't think it did. But it was a real shock that Labour didn't win against this vanilla non-entity who wore his underpants outside his shirt and he liked eating peas with with Norma, i.e. John Major, you know. Little did he know, eh, Jim? Yeah, but (laughs) What John Major is up to. But I I mean, covering covering the John Major campaign, uh, I've got one more other thing to say before that, but when we came to the John Major campaign, one of the first places he was losing, and he, I think he said to his advisors, "I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this campaign. Who I think I'm going to be me." And one of the first places where he got a soapbox, I mean, it was literally just he came into the middle of Chester, put this box down, and stood on it. Yes, oh, okay. I think he did it in Watford first, mm. but it was a sensation that he just. You know, because Kinnock was going around all presidential. Because, because to be fair to Neil, you could see when he was trying to appear respectable and all that, and he was a bit over-presidential until he slightly lost it at Sheffield. Whereas Major said, look, we're going to lose. My last throw is to be, you know, get on this soapbox. And people crowded around him, and the security was like, so, and, he, and he managed to managed to turn it around. And a terrible thing for Neil Kinnock, because he never became Prime Minister, that was two defeats he'd suffered, so obviously he wasn't going to be able to go for the hat-trick. But Labour will probably, in hindsight, say it was a good one to lose. Well, yes, because within a few months, um, the Conservatives had to leave the IMF. And this is, a, this is a point for today, in my opinion. They lost their economic credibility over leaving the IMF. But at the end of the day, the IMF leaving that was, was a, if you understand me, a slightly technical matter. It didn't immediately mean people paying hundreds of pounds more a month on their mortgages. Whereas this um, economic calamity is having immediate effects. Now, you know, Labour people are always nervous and you can understand that. But if there's any comparison, two years is not going to be enough to allow the Conservatives to restore their their credibility. Um, just one other memory of a much more somber nature I need to talk to you about, uh, 1984. I was in the bar of the um, Grand Hotel in Brighton until about one o'clock in the morning. And I went home, went to sleep, and I just turned my television on about 6 a.m. And I, for two or three minutes, I couldn't understand what I was looking at because this was the bar where I'd been. And then, of course, the bomb went off, nearly killing half the cabinet. Um, so that was a, you know, and I spent the day reporting on it. And, um, you know, it turned out in the end that the Northwest chair of the Conservative Party had been, had been killed there. So, but, you know, you know, because a lot of people lingered on in the bar and, until 
you know, when, when, the, when the thing went off. But that, that's changed. I'm surprised you were out by one o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> that changed party conferences as well, of course. Security. The, the secu- you know, so we've now got massive security, yeah. which to yeah. some extent kills it. Um, and, and then you've got these set speeches. You know, so it's not, yeah. the, it's not the fun that it, it's fun that it was. Um, f- final one. Um, oh, no, t- two more. John Major, uh, uh, again, you know, in 1996, I interviewed him. Uh, and I just remember one of the things, and it's one of these things you do with interviewing techniques where you, where you don't bomb in with another question. You let them fill the space. And I said, Prime Minister, I've heard everything you've said. But Conservatives have now been in office since 1979. And there comes a, a point in time with the tides running against you and there's nothing you can do. And I, I stopped. And he didn't, to his credit in a way, I suppose, he didn't immediately reply. He, you know, you think, oh, he's right. <laughs> and then he, then he came up with some formula. But I just thought the gap, you know, nothing on the tape, you know, when he actually said that was, was quite significant. And then finally, with Tony Blair, which is almost at the, it was the 2005 election, I said, well, Tony, um, you know, I'd, I'd done the interview and you know, I said, well, Tony, you know, um, as they say, it says in Julius Caesar, if we meet again, we'll smile. If not, this parting was well made. And he said, yes, and look what happened to him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so of all of the politicians that you've met, and I'm not asking you about your political opinion here. This is just character, personality, leadership. Who's been the most impressive? Well, you see, you, you, in a way, you come back to Ben um, in, in terms of clarity of his, of his, of his vision and, and presence and that sort of thing. You, you, look at, you look at people like Ben, you even look at Powell in, in terms of his... Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell, the, ra- the racist, you know, and all that, but the, but the the way in which he spoke, um, it had great power. I mean, I'm not talking about who I admired now. I'm talking about effective, no, absolutely not. effective political. Yeah. I mean, I, I at Piccadilly Radio, I um, I interviewed Oswald Mosley, the fascist leader well. from the 1930s. There was a lot of fuss about it and so on. Um, the TUC almost a man called. Colin Barnett was the Northwest Secretary of the TUC at the time. He tried to get in banned. But you saw he was an elderly man, but you saw in those eyes, you know. So this, those, those people, those people are, are very, very impressive. But, but so was Thatcher in her way, you know, the lady's not returning. She was under extreme pressure at that time. And, and, and it had been an era where gov- successive governments had sort of bowed to the wind. Um, and everyone thought in 81 she'll, she'll change and she, she said, the lady's not for turning. And, you know, she was, it's all the great what ifs of history. If the Falklands War hadn't happened, even with the issues in the Labour Party we talked about, you know, the, she could have been saved. A lot of people had been remained unemployed and she did this lady's not for turning, you know. You turn if you want to, the lady's not returning. And even later on, something I totally disagreed with, you know, that they want the European Parliament to be in charge. They want the Commission to be the cabinet. And no, no, no. So she, she, she was definitely a very, very impressive figure.
and and, and the, so was Tony Blair in a way, but it wasn't it wasn't his oratory. Um, it, it was it was the way in which he saw the unelectability of the party and turned it around. And I'm and I finally have to mention my Plymouthian friend Michael Furr. You know that sort of um, that, that oratory that he he came up with it was, it was fantastic. So those those would be my people. Interesting. He was a fabulous speaker, actually, Michael Furr. I, I often feel sad at the thought of people looking at the '83 election and Michael Foote's political career around that because prior to him becoming leader of the Labour Party, he was the darling of the left. And one of the reasons he was the darling of the left was because he was such a fantastic, fiery speaker. speaker. And he didn't have the responsibility of office. Correct. As soon as he became employment secretary and had to deal with, mm. you know, he found it difficult. Difficult. Michael, yeah. yeah. But I... You know, I'm sure you'll agree with me. He was a much more formidable character and personality than that caricature he became with the donkey jacket and the cenotaph and all that nonsense. You see, he was of an age where that image stuff wasn't, you know, he didn't have an image coach. And now you see, generally speaking, people are very conscious of where they appear. Although... There are some real cliches. I couldn't believe that um, Jonathan uh, Hunt, you know, the, the Chancellor, immediately after his autumn statement, went to a primary school with that awfully uncomfortable shot of this middle-aged man trying to sit on a tiny chair and show an interest. And these and the children's faces are fantastic because they're they're either bewildered or who's this guy? You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's such a cliche. Those photo. You know, I mean, we in the media need pictures, you know, because that's always the problem with politics. There aren't any pictures. Um, so we sort of demand some sort of photo opportunity. But, you know, it doesn't often work. I mean, Rishi carrying burgers around, it, it, all, it becomes a... A fill in a petrol can. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, dear old, talking about Neil Kinnock, taking a stroll on the beach at with Brian. With Glenys. And the, and, the, and the wave yeah. knocked him over. And it became an iconic... It did. Like, just like Thatcher, in, but then on the other hand, it can work. Thatcher in the tank, that worked. Um, Trust tried to copy it without, you know, these things are fraught with danger, photo opportunities. Yeah. Listen, it's a fascinating industry, is politics. And when you've been reporting on it for as long as you have, you've seen it all. Um, but you've talked a lot about the past, naturally. You did talk about modern day sort of communications now and how difficult that is for politicians and personalities. Well, I think we've come to the, uh, you know, I, th I have to acknowledge, I mean, I, I, I like to read a physical newspaper, but I'm not under any illusion. You don't, when did you last see anyone under the age of about 30 reading a newspaper? So podcasting, um, texting, that's, you know, that is going to be the mode of communication. But the thing is, it's so so swift, so judgmental, and so unaccountable in some ways. You know, I just wonder whether the political dialogue is going to be improved by it. There's a lot more of it, so people should be getting better informed. But as we've seen in the States, sometimes all it's leading to is polarisation and unwillingness to engage with the other side, which can be quite dangerous. And you've got to be able to tell a story in 140 characters, Jim, or you're dead. I mean, it's nonsense. Where's the investigative journalist? There's That's a bit of my it. worry. I mean, there is a bit of it. But let me come back and we'll sort of 
end the conversation around this subject, if we may, about a whole host of things to do with locality, localism, devolution. Liverpool Echo, where we're sat now, used to have the Daily Post when we set up 20 years ago. Daily Post was the major platform for me to launch this business organisation. I wrote for them for a while after I left the BBC. And you had journalists who were genuinely interested in what does the business community think? How will politicians react to this particular agenda? How will the economy drive forward? The Liverpool Echo used to run campaigns on a regular basis around all sorts of issues, and they were proper campaigns. And everybody used to buy the Liverpool Echo. It's not just Liverpool. Local newspapers across the country are either disappearing or have become clickbait entities. Um, so we now see local radio, BBC, under attack. That, as somebody who worked as the political editor for BBC Northwest, must be quite a depressing thought. Yes, and I always used to take my local radio responsibilities seriously. I had a, a unit at home so that you know, first thing in the morning I could do all, all the Radio Merseyside, Lancashire, Radio Manchester, um, you know, uh, and, and feed them stuff as well. I didn't just do the television. Um, and the BBC have got to be awfully careful about cutting back on local radio because I, you and I want to defend the BBC to the last ditch. But one of the defences is for the licence fee is that they are doing things that the commercial sector will not do. And the idea of merging programmes after two o'clock in the afternoon, I think, is profound. Because we're not talking, in the great scheme of the BBC budget, we're not talking a huge amount. But the damage that's done, you know, there's a... And, and, and BBC Local Radio, at times of the pandemic and with their lo- local sports coverage, you know... They, 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 they do it really well, but there has been a retrenchment and I think the BBC's got to be extremely careful. I mean, they have... There's always this slight competition with local papers, although it's now almost completely irrelevant. The local papers are always apprehensive about local radio and the political coverage. And so there's this scheme for local democracy reporters. But, you know, the problem is that councillors are not going to be scrutinised. No, correct. And then... Scandals will emerge, especially as we haven't got an audit commission either. Don't get me started on that. So, you know, it's a recipe for, you know, without the, without the light being cast on our politicians, n- not in the sort of destructive way that we're getting with social media, but as you say, measured investigative journalism, making sure that things are being done properly. There's no coverage. And then, as we, without going into great detail, we see the revelation of, major problems which require outside intervention and all that sort of thing. You mentioned that um, you don't express party political views, but the one thing that you have been passionate about since I met you in 97 is devolution, is getting power into the North West. And I mentioned you and I met in that year. I think I was chairman of the Northwest Regional Assembly, yes. Deputy Leader of Lancashire County Council. Um, and you and I have always been big advocates of more devolved powers. I think both of us would think that regional assembly model to be the best. We seem to have moved away from that now. And we 
replace that with electric nerves combined with alternatives and so on. Um, Thanks to our friend Sir Howard Bernstein. I mean, Howard how, how did not like the regional structure. No. He wanted to build, you know, there is a view that you, you've got to have that energy of the cities. And if you have a regional structure, you dissipate. That, that very crudely is the argument. Now, I would have a, a, an argument that you've got to help the, I, I, I find the, the structure now confusing. LEPs, some places having MERS, other places having met county deals. How the public are meant to follow this? This is the danger. Trying to get people engaged with devolution is hard enough anyway. And if you've got complex structures, whereas Prescott, a regional development agency, an assembly keeping it in order, and crucially, unitary local government underneath it. And so the the thing that Cummings, you know, (laughs) starting his career undermining regional government when he said it would be more politicians, we, we, or well, I wasn't, I was a reporter at the time, but those who were advocating weren't fleet of foot enough to say, actually, there'd be hundreds of councillors from lower tier authorities and actually lose their jobs. Yeah, yeah. I um, still think it was a missed opportunity, um, the fact that we don't have a, a, a regional uh, assembly in the Northwest. But as they say, we are where we are. And so, you know, my. Uh, well, we don't know what um, Rachel Reeves' thing last week was. Broader and deeper devolution. I don't know what that means. It probably. I don't, I don't think it means scrapping the cities. Agenda, you're not going. You're not going to change that now. I yeah. think. I think when you've got, you know, and again, you're talking about political giants. You know, in the modern day, that would be Andy Burner. It would be Andy Street. You know, these people are big, powerful voices. And Ben Houchin on the Tory side, yeah, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah, and St- you know, Steve is. Yeah. Um, and and. I think a, a very positive reputation, both in terms of the quiet way in which he's getting about doing the job in Liverpool City region, but also the relationship the city has behind the scenes with government. Probably wouldn't thank me for saying that publicly, but well, at the moment, Steve Rodham's very could, well thought. You could say, he's in the light of the difficulties of the city, he's the only game in town. Exactly. So I can't see Labour ripping that up, but I do worry because, again, if we can just, if I can be a little self-indulgent. Uh, it's not like me, Jane. But you will remember in 1997, Lancashire was certainly not second division of local government. Um, I was chairman of the regional assembly, went on to become leader. That was nothing to do with us, something to do with me, but it was mostly to do with the fact that Lancashire was seen as a powerhouse, if not the powerhouse within the Northwest. We had Radical agenda that we know. Louise Elmage, you know, in the history of the Northwest oh, politics. She was absolutely absolutely, And so, you know, the counties, I think, have lost the game through their own inactivity, lack of ambition, lack of inspirational leadership. The, the, the problem, I mean, I, I've uh, only just done a conference for Cheshire and Warrington who are inching towards asking for a county deal. The, 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 the problem, I mean, the problem they've got, I'm not trying to excuse some of it because it's clearly nonsense. There are 14 councils in Lancashire and three in Cheshire, isn't it? Is, is this insistence on an elected mayor? Now, I, I don't know. I mean, there is an argument that perhaps an elected mayor is not quite so appropriate for more rural areas. But the government, you know, the government seemed to be quite starkly saying, if you want the big deal, you've got to take an elected mayor. Rural areas like Preston and Blackburn and Burnley. And- well, that, 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 of course, is another problem. You've got 
proud rival and intense rivalry. Um, but the, the net result is that Greater Manchester in particular is charging ahead. Liverpool City region under Steve's leadership is, is doing well. Um, and and these, these, these two counties have really got to decide to bite the bullet. But the political leaders within there are trying, you know, it's quite complicated in Cheshire and Warrington. The politics is quite complicated because there's a, there's a lot of independents who have been elected in Cheshire East who, who believe in very local decision-making for Nutsford and Macclesfield and never mind even Cheshire East. So that's, that's the political problem that they're presented with. I mean, my view, I mean, and John Prescott's um, RDAs and things, they weren't, they weren't referendums and all this. Yeah, just they just it. did it. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if you put it in the manifesto, you just get on with it because with the best will in the world, you go out to consultation. Most people don't participate. No. It's only the vested interest. Correct. Which, you know, so, you know, get on with it. And parochialism always. I mean, look what Heath, 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 Heath really um, um, seriously um, annoyed. I'm going to use a polite word on this. Hundreds of people who were in those urban and rural district councils. Peter Walker, who was his secretary, just just got on with it and created the metropolitan counties, and, and that that should be the way forward. I know it sounds a bit, a bit dictatorial, but you know people need to read the manifesto, like the 1970 manifesto, which said, "We will negotiate with the common market, and if the terms are right, we will enter." And we're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary on January the first of that. Well, the European Union's a whole other subject and Brexit. We'll do that next time. Final thing, going to end on our story. So tell the listeners how we first came into contact, you and James. It was a yes. very top secret meeting, was it not? Well, yeah, I think we're talking about the bathing waters, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, and it, and it goes to a truth about the relationship between journalists and politicians. You know, obviously the formal position is that we... We as journalists treat all politicians equally and uh, so on and so forth. The fact of the matter is, if you've got a, a politician who will give you an exclusive and is reasonable performer on the media, you are going to go back to that person and you're going to develop relationships with those people rather than people who are either frightened or disinclined to engage with the media. Don't get... I mean, there's a friend of mine I work with now on media training courses. Uh, he was a... Um, an editor of the Lancashire Evening Telegraph, Simon Reynolds. And um, one politician got exasperated with him when he was saying, and she said to him, oh, you're, all you're interested in is selling newspapers. He said, absolutely, thank you very much. And that's the essence of it. All I, you know, not all I was interested in, but I, you know, I wanted people to watch my programme. And you, know, you um, gave me a, a, a leak of some pretty serious figures about bathing water quality on the Lancashire coast. I don't know. I don't know to this day why you contacted me. You must have seen I me on the, to telly. Get on the telly. Right. Okay. So you thought <laughs> I'm the man for it. So you gave me this bathing quality story. No, I, I, I will have spoken to. I can't remember exactly, but I will have spoken to Louise. Um, I will have spoken to the because we have media teams at that time, yes. the county hall, who were well experienced, well versed. Yes. I will have spoken to those people and they will have said, I'll talk to you, man. Yeah, and, you, and we, got, we got it first and exclusively. And, you know, 
there's nothing like getting an exclusive. I mean, you can, you can, and I'm afraid, going back to our previous conversation, and it's because of resources, I'm not criticising the young journalists. They're doing seven stories, you know, trying to, you know, because there aren't any staff. But it's so easy to just react to what's in the papers or what press release you get in. And the real journalism is breaking stories. Because when that story, again, not it's just about you and I, this was the BBC and the power of the BBC at that time at a regional level. You know, you come out to the to County Hall, you interviewed me, you've got a camera crew, you then go to Blackpool Beach, you're doing shots of the beach, because, as you say, pictures, very important. Um, the resource that must have gone into that one story, I just can't imagine that even getting on the telly. Well, you know, it required, you know, in, in my day, you, you'd have a, <laughs> when I was at Granada, it was, to be fair, it was at the other end of the, of the spectrum because it was in the days when, I mean, um, a friend of mine, um, well, he's dead now, so I can say this, Bob Greaves was somehow in a position to vet the expenses of a friend of mine. And he sent these expenses to Bob and Bob sent them back saying they weren't sufficient. I mean, you know, this was the days when ITV was print, printing money effectively. So there was, you know, there was, and I, I remember going out to do an MP once and I had um, a cameraman, sound man, and they were all men, a, a charge hand whose responsibility was making sure that the wires, you didn't trip on the wires. And they all, and we had got halfway to Rochdale and they said, oh, it's lunchtime now. I said, well, let's have a quick snack. Snack? <laughs> Three courses it's in, the, in the union rules. So that was one end of the spectrum. And then one of the reasons I left was that there was a prospect of them saying to me, you're going to have to shoot, edit your own stuff. And that wasn't for me. I loved the comradeship with the camera person. I loved working with the editor on stuff. Now, you know, colleagues of mine adapted to the new process, but it's quite stressful and it's under-resourced and, and, and you can't always do what, what you say, you know, getting shots in the beach and all that. But in, in my opinion, unless you get out of the office and talk to politicians, I was even doing it today in Warrington, you know, the, the, the two or three people I met on the sidebar of a conference I was hosting and had intimate chats with them. Unfortunately, well, apart from the blog I do for you, I haven't got the outlets now. But I was, I was back in my old milieu of soaking up information. I was talking to Tories and Labour people. I picked up a massive information today about the politics of Cheshire and Warrington. And you, but you've got to get out there. You've got to be seen. You've got to work at night. You know, I didn't spend as much time with my kids as I should have done. You've got, it's a, almost a, like a 24-hour operation to do it properly. You can't just rely on, or, or, or you can, but you're just doing a reflective thing rather than getting on the front foot. But, uh, but I'm, not, I'm not trying to be an old general saying, oh, it's not like it was in my day. All my colleagues who are now in post are struggling under massive cost pressures. And so it's not particularly their fault, but it is a question for the nation to decide what sort of journalism it wants. James, on that note, thank you for being our latest guest in the downtown dead. It's been great to... You'll have to that. ooze stamina, if I may use a thing from Newscasts <laughs> on the BBC. You'll have to ooze stamina to listen to all of this. People will. And going back to the point you made earlier, maybe this is the new way in which you learn to communicate with people. And I think what's important um, is that, you know, we've done a whirlwind tour 
of some fabulous characters and personalities. And all I'd say to younger listeners who will not recognise some of those names is that one of the fantastic things about modern media now is something called YouTube, where you can actually go back and see some of the things that Jim and I have been talking about. Thatcher's not for Turner's speech, absolutely momentous. The Dennis Healy speech, again, a part of history. If you've not seen that clip, go onto YouTube, search Dennis Healy, it pops up. Tony Benn speaking, the Neil Kinnock speech. You know, all of these things that we've spoken about are very easily accessible now because of this new modern communications world. So it's not all downside. There are some positives as well. But my big fear, and I think this came out in the course of the conversation, is were that investigative journalism that has uncovered so many things over the years. Where is that coming from in the future? I do worry about that. And sadly, I worry about the fact that, and I'm not saying this just because he's here, um, we're not going to produce, and we don't produce, the personalities, the characters, the people with the knowledge of this region that television did for many years. And I've been very fortunate to have two wonderful friends from that industry sector. One sadly passed out, Tony Wilson. The other still very much alive and keeping Jim Hancock. And it's been great, great to speak to you today and do a bit of reminiscing, but also looking at some of the challenges for the future as well. Thanks, Jim. I've enjoyed it very much. Cheers, mate. Downtown in Business is the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Working with decision makers from over a thousand companies across the country in Liverpool, Lancashire, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Cheshire, Wolverhampton, Newcastle and London with more locations to follow. Through our exciting and extensive events programme and through our social media platforms, we connect our members with other businesses who can help them grow and we engage with senior politicians and officials at local, regional and national level to promote business-friendly policies. To join Downtown in Business, please visit our website, www.downtowninbusiness.com. Why don't you get involved with the fastest growing business organization in the UK? Thank you.